I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Global health, does it really matter to any of us here in the islands? You better believe it does. Yet the disparities in healthcare are quite obvious to anyone who's traveled overseas. In the past few years, we've seen how much of the health of those in developing countries affects all of us. Just think about Ebola, chikungunya, Zika, dengue. But it seems like we pay much more attention to what's going on when it comes to our own backyard. What's the biggest source of trouble in developing countries? It's not what you think. Here to share a more global perspective on health is Dr. Paul Morose. He's an orthopedic surgery specialist at Shriners who spent time treating people in Haiti and all over the Pacific Rim. What's it like to provide health care in such challenging circumstances? Well, we are about to find out. Now, as always in our discussion, you are part of it. And if you've ever had an experience with Shriners and, and or had somebody you know who received excellent care there, we'd love to hear your story as well. You can join us at any time, 941-3689, toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Dr. Paul, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you, Kathleen. Pleasure to be here. Now, tell me, you've got a very interesting background. Not only do you do orthopedic surgery, but you started off as an epidemiologist. And, you know, that's studying the different patterns of disease and what happens in other locations and what are the percentages. And it's all that statistic stuff that I've never really been all that fond of. Tell me a little bit about your background and how that's enabled you to do what you do. Well, uh, uh, epidemiology is the study of population health or... uh, trying to figure out the cause of uh, disease and the burden of diseases of any kind, whether it's uh, an internal medicine problem or an, even an orthopedic problem. And so um, uh, when I was a biology student uh, wondering what to do with myself, um, I just happened to be in a part of the world in, 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 uh, at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, where the evidence-based uh, medicine sort of um, move, it all started, yeah. movements uh, w- was happening. And uh, a guy named David Sackett, uh, originally from Chicago, came to Canada to become the first chairman of the first Department of Clinical Epidemiology, came there, and then started this whole sort of evidence-based movement, which, you know, um, how can you not get into that? Because, you know, uh, you, you if people are going to do things to you, uh, you want to know is what's the evidence. And if I, if I had any advice to anybody out there in Radioland is always ask your doctor, what's the evidence? You know, write that down and always ask. So I, 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 be, I learned to appreciate the importance of, of that kind of questioning and, and inquiry. And then, uh, and then I liked the research side of it, and it allowed me to do work you know, almost anywhere I did my research in the Canadian Arctic. And so I got to go there for, uh, for a while. And then, uh, and then you can do that kind of work anywhere, uh, in the big city, in the third world, uh, developing world, however you want to call it. Um, and, uh, and, but then I kind of thought, well, you know, it's pretty cool to be able to sort of uh, delineate the causes of of, of disease and, and, and what's contributing to them. But now I want to do something about it. And so uh, so off I went to medical school, and then I thought, well, you know, I'll use the two epidemiology and medical school and be kind of a public health specialist or something like that. Uh, but uh, it just took one day in the OR and orthopedics to change my whole life because 
the power tools were just too much fun. You just um, couldn't help yourself. Power well, tools and you know, it's bone like, fractures. There's a fracture that needs fixing, and you, you know, it's a puzzle to put together. It's the instant gratification. You have uh, great nurses and doctors helping you, and you've got a, you know, a problem to fix, and you've got uh, uh, you know, fun tools that are very expensive uh, to, to use, and it's just too much fun. So I found that it'd be easier to dabble in, in epidemiology on the side and then have a real job in orthopedics than the other way around. You can't do it the other way around, really. So, um, so that's uh, so that's my journey from epidemiology, and uh, uh, you know the power of evidence you can use in any field, and so uh, um, so I've continued that work in 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 population health, uh, working in uh, in in developing countries, trying to figure out you know how can we how can we help you know my colleagues in developing countries to to improve orthopedics because uh, um, orthopedic trauma is a huge problem all over the world. Road traffic crashes is a, are a big problem in any mega city in the third world or developing world, and uh, and um, and so it's uh, it's 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 interesting to get involved in that side of the research side of things. So, well, and when we think about what are the most common causes of death in developing countries, we often think, oh, it must be disease, it must be some sort of infection or some kind of strange right. type of problem, but in fact. It's actually trauma, right? And it's uh, and when my uh, when my residents, my surgical residents, who I'm helping to train, go on me on go with me on trips over to Africa or Asia, um, uh, accompany me. They're all asking, well, you know, they're worried about the personal safety quite clearly, and so they'll ask, uh, you know, well, what kind of you know, you have to get all the vaccinations, and I'm worried about this and I'm worried about that. But in reality, their biggest worry should be. You know, watching out for the vehicles that are storming along, or, or, or don't rent a motorcycle to go to work on because they don't obey laws in Dar es Salaam. You know, like we do here, and uh, and that's part of the reason. But it's also interesting, even here in North America. So, uh, if you ask uh, mothers uh, what the biggest risk to their children are, they'll say, "Oh, diabetes, cancer, obesity." Um, and that's their biggest concern. But in fact, if you look at the statistics from the age of one to about 45 years of age, the number one cause of death is trauma, Un- unintentional well, injury. So uh, cra- uh, motor vehicle crashes, pedestrian injuries, falling off a bicycle, falling down some stairs, accidental drowning. And so those are the biggest uh, cause of death. When you go to the developing world, uh, it's the same thing. And, and then on top of that, you've got the HIV problem. And that sort of thing. But if you look at trauma deaths in the world, uh, WHO data will say there's more than 5 million deaths a year from trauma. That's actually more more death from trauma than from uh, HIV, malaria, TB, measles, all combined. And so, um, but we just don't think of it. Uh, you know, we don't think, we think of it, oh, it's an accident. And many people in, in, in the world think, uh, you know, an accident is a is a, a random thing. It's a, it's a haphazard thing. There's nothing you can do about it. Well, in fact, it's quite clear that 90% of accidents can be uh, can be prevented through you know safe you know don't drink when you drive uh, you know uh, um, you know seatbelt laws, helmet laws, uh, having good tires, uh, not driving when you're sitting, when you're tired, having a, a good vehicle, that kind of thing. So all these laws actually protect us. And um, those haven't uh, those laws haven't translated to many much of the developed developed developing world, and so uh, eventually it will because it has to, you know. Well, and, and I, I recall yeah. being in Vietnam um, a few years back when they were right about to establish a helmet law, 
And it was very interesting because, you know, I was there to travel in Vietnam and I was doing some stuff in Cambodia. And they made this law that said, as of this day, everybody needs to wear a helmet. And it was very interesting to see how the two different countries interpreted it. In Vietnam, everybody within an overnight had these somewhat interesting, fashionable sort of helmets when they ride motorbikes. And, you know, the consequences were, if you don't do this, your motorbike will be confiscated. And then afterwards, we went to Cambodia, and they had a similar law. And yet the idea was bribe the person who stops you. You can get away with it. You don't need to wear a helmet. It was just a totally different response to this potentially public health hazard that they were trying to address in the two countries. And really, it's because when you go to places like that, the motorbikes, you know, there's people, there's five and six people on them. They're going at speeds and roads that, you know, we complain about our roads here. We have got nothing to complain about compared to some of the roads in developing countries. And yet some of our roads here seem to make it feel like you're in those countries. But still, you know, the trauma element, I think, is something that people don't necessarily understand. Now, when we think about trauma and you being an orthopedic surgeon, that's a great fit. It what is. are some of the places that you have gone to in the world and and provided medical care, and what are some of the surprising things you've noticed? Well, I've worked in Nepal quite a bit. Uh, I've worked in a country called Bhutan, which is not far from Nepal, with a, uh, an American in, uh, NGO called Health Volunteers Overseas. Uh, another uh, name for it is Orthopedics Overseas. I've worked with them for several years uh, uh, going uh, to Bhutan for a month and basically being uh, one of their staff surgeons while one of their guys goes on leave or something like that. And you just become a member of their hospital and, uh, you know, you teach their residents or their surgeons how, you know, new, new advances that we do in North America. Um, you just see a steady stream of orthopedic problems. The interesting thing about trauma is that, I mean, I was talking a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, the number of deaths in the world. But for every death from trauma, there is about five people who are severely injured. So by severe would be an amputation or a quadriplegia or multiple fractures. And then for every uh, five of those, there'd be, you know, 15 sort of ankle fractures, something. So it's a it's called the injury pyramid. And so uh, and these become the disabled people in the world who never get properly treated. So in Bhutan or Nepal or Tanzania, where I've worked or in Nairobi, a lot of the things we see are not only the acute injuries, but also the fractures that are five years old. Uh, I had a patient here, because uh, 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 the Shriners, I guess we'll talk a little bit about that in a bit, but uh, we see a lot of children coming from the Pacific Basin countries um, that uh, have um, old trauma, we call it. And so these are fractures that never got quite, you know, ever got fixed at all, or may have gone to a traditional uh, bone healer, and it, you know, and things went wrong. I, the thing about traditional bone healers too is, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that they do a good job, but actually, there's some data to suggest they can be quite, uh, you know, contribute to the problem as well. So, um, what what is a traditional bone healer? What do you mean by that? Well, when you know, when you're when you're in rural uh, sub-Saharan Africa and you're so far from the big city where all the orthopedic surgeons are, there are no orthopedic surgeons in the rural parts. Uh, you might not even have a doctor in that hospital. You may have a, uh, you know, a, a health aide or something like that that's dealing with, with most problems, and they'll do the best they can. But uh, people will, uh, people will not be able to afford to go to the big city, which may be hundreds of miles away. Or they, or if they do, they might not be able to afford the fee there that uh, they need in order to have an operation. So they'll go to the traditional bone healer, and uh, and. Um, 
uh, again, like I said, I'd like to think that, you know, they may have learned over the years, but in fact, uh, they, they can cause quite a, quite a bit of trouble as well. And with the misplacing fractures or causing uh, compartment syndrome, there's a, um, where I've been working in Tanzania, there's a, there's a tribe that uh, have a tendency to put wet sheepskin uh, um, uh, skins around fractures. And as these sheepskins dry over the next 48 hours, they contract. And then, uh, then it starts to develop too, you know, a, a compartment syndrome or too much pressure on the arm or leg that it actually threatens the, the blood supply to the muscle and actually kills off the arm. And the, you know, and the, and the patient's screaming and pain, and then, they, and then they'll say, oh, that's just part of the treatment and that sort of thing. And then, and then they'll end up coming to the, to the hospital because they're an extremist or having big-time problems. And then sometimes the, the problem is too late, and they end up with an amputation. And then it'll come back to the village. Oh, you see, this is what happens when you go to the hospital. You get an amputation. Don't go there. So it's so that it's, reverse uh, kind of totally. situation yes, where... Totally. seen it a number of times, and it's... Hmm. How do you get around that? I think the only way is education. You've got to get out to those villages and somehow, you know, get the message across that, you know, see, you know, if this happens... You know, uh, but again, it comes down to resources. It comes down to brain drain. Uh, you know, there are so few orthopedic surgeons in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, it's getting better. I've been fortunate to uh, be involved in some training programs and being an examiner for the College of Surgeons of Eastern and Southern Africa. And uh, so we're, we're helping to, uh, to train them and to bring their standards up so that they can you know, get more and more orthopedic surgeons in, in smaller towns and in, in, in rural areas in Africa. So it's slowly happening, but it's it's a slow process for sure, you know. Well, so. and there's a lot to be done. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the health in developing countries affects us because if things don't go well there, we, as a global community, are sometimes affected by it, whether it be infections that spread throughout the rest of the world, mm-hmm. whether it be mosquito-borne, whether it be, you know, dengue over on the Big Island. But in addition, we also have to think about the fact that some of these traumatic episodes, car accidents, motorcycle accidents, they could happen. It could happen to anybody. Yes. You can yes. be on vacation and yes. blow your entire trip. Yes. There and are if- lots of examples of that, actually, of aid workers being injured uh, in developing countries. It's uh, it's true. And, you know, uh, and and... Part of the reason guys like me are starting, when I say guys like me, uh, orthopedic surgeons who do epidemiology in in the developing world are actually starting to get some funding from organizations like the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, because they're realizing that poor pre-hospital care or emergent care is not good for the economy of your emerging economies, emerging markets. So um, they're realizing that, you know... um, as Africa develops, they're developing a burgeoning middle class. And they want good health care. They, they're no longer going to tolerate that. So, um, uh, so they realize that if, you're, if the economy runs on a truck running from uh, Nairobi to Mombasa and that truck doesn't make it because for whatever reason and, and you know, uh, people are killed, this, you, you, can't, you can't base an economy on that. Or a bus, for example. You know, the number of bus crashes that happen in the Himalayas, for example, over... We hear about that. It seems know. like we're almost numb to it. I mean, right, okay, right. I look on CNN and another bus fell off right, of a cliff and right. all these people died. And it happens so frequently. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that part of what we need to export is not just our medical knowledge and education, but also 
Yeah. Some basic safety ideas? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, you know, I had a, I don't, I had a professor who said more, more has been done to change, uh, a sur- change the risk of surgical problems by non-surgeons than by surgeons. So what I'm saying is public health of, of efforts like safer roads, um, uh, safety laws, um, uh, enforce safety laws because uh, we talked earlier about bribing your, uh, you know, your the cop who stops. Sure, you. that could happen anywhere. Yeah. But it just could, so happened I was watching it. Good breaks, things like that. I mean, uh, if if we observe that, there'll be much much fewer deaths or much much fewer people injured uh, than than any surgeon can help. A surgeon helps a single person on the on the table, but if you have a public health effort to reduce thousands of deaths, you're doing much more in a, in, in in you know in a population sense. So safe, the safety talk has to go there. And that's actually really being pushed by the WHO. They have a five-pillar program trying to reduce this, this uh, epidemic of road, tra- road traffic crashes in the world uh, because it affects economies, it affects lives. Uh, and so one of those pillars is, you know, actual pre-hospital care. When I say pre-hospital, it means ambulance care and then also the in-hospital care, so the orthopedic acute care, you know, which is uh, deficient right now. But... Uh, in addition to identifying when things aren't going well and knowing when to send that person for more expert care, whether mm-hmm. it be in that country or in another country, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that Shriners really has a mission for, mm-hmm. is identifying those who are disadvantaged yeah. and bringing them to the absolute optimal care that they can receive to help restore their livelihood, to turn that individual who's previously injured into a future functional member of society. Right. And that's really where a lot of the emphasis and effort has really been recognized that Shriners has done such an amazing job. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about one of the unique opportunities that you have, which is to go to disaster areas and what you've learned about what we could all do better because we think we're isolated here in the islands, and yet, boy, it would just take a big earthquake or a tsunami to put us in a situation where we would be so isolated we'd have to rely on one another. And some of the experiences you've had globally have taught you some lessons that we could all learn here if we were to prepare for some sort of public health emergency. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Paul Moraz. He is a orthopedic surgeon specialist at Shriners Hospital right here in Honolulu. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about how healthcare in the developing world affects all of us and what we can all learn from someone who's had those experiences. As always, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. 3689. If you've been on any sort of disaster mission, we'd kind of like to hear your experience and what went well and what we could all learn to do better. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Well, I can listen to everything I need for the day from the news to the music to good stories. And it's 24 7, 365. I think probably Derek uh, in his morning edition is one of my favorites, and of course I love Kana Kapila on Sunday afternoons. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. What's true of chess, it being interesting only when difficult, only when one encounters resistance, is also true of life in general. Chess Moves, this week on Selected Shorts, from PRI, Public Radio International. 
Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Straub Clinic and Hospital and Gourmet Events Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Paul Moraz, and he is an orthopedic surgery specialist at Shriners Hospital. And before the break, we were talking about some of the experiences people may have when traveling, particularly with orthopedic trauma. You know, accidents can happen anywhere, but in areas that don't have as much prevention for those accidents, sometimes it's a little more difficult to avoid getting in the middle of one. Now, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit, Dr. Moraz, with about uh, about some of the experiences. You know, I remember years ago, I went with the Aloha Medical Mission to Banda Aceh after the tsunami, and we went there to try and be part of some sort of assistance and help for the people. And we arrived, and some of us wound up sort of coordinating efforts with the International Medical Corps. And one of the things that I witnessed when I was there is this was true disaster events that we were trying to help uh, in any way to provide medical care for. But, you know, it seemed like there were a lot of other agencies, and we were all doing something very similar. You know, Medicine Sans Frontiers or Doctors Without Borders was there, World Vision, UNICEF, Red Cross, and actually had an international response as well. There were people from Switzerland and Germany and France, and different international teams took over different aspects of care. And although it seemed somewhat well-coordinated, in the grand perspective, there really wasn't as much coordination as we would hope. And often in disastrous situations, we find that. Now, you've, you've been involved in some of these, and you've had the opportunity to see firsthand what goes on. What are some of the lessons that here is such an isolated community in the islands that we would definitely be, should there be any disaster, or planes not able to land, or something like that? What are some lessons that we could learn from what you've seen globally? Uh, the Banda Aceh uh, 2004 tsunami referred to as um, uh, one, a, a good example of uh, of an international response that, f- you know, for good, you know, people want to help. Clearly, there are organizations out there, and and then the coordination is 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 off, and frustrations like you experienced happen. Uh, Haiti was probably in 2010 was even worse because. Uh, probably because it was closer to North America. It was more easily scrutinized. And actually, the, the proximity to, to Miami, I mean, same time zone uh, within a single plane flight. So uh, it was, um, it was um, a disaster response nightmare as well because some of those good organizations like IMC that you went with or Doctors Without Borders or Red Cross actually were in, in uh, the – People were flying, doctors literally flying in their own private planes down to Dominican Republic or Haiti actually got in their way. So they couldn't really get started with their response. And so uh, Haiti uh, and Bandate uh, were real the hallmarks that showed that we've got to do something to improve the, uh, the disaster response from an international uh, um, uh, format. So, But people don't know quite how to fix that because, you know, what do you do? Do you... Uh, militarize it and then with with whose military do you uh you know does the who do that uh you know does the red cross do that that sort of thing so these things are kind of being hammered out right now i think the united nations are developing a a, um a sort of a a code of conduct if you will and um and um in in uh in north america the american academy of orthopedic surgeons and the 
Um, Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons are developing a disaster response uh, course for orthopedic surgeons in response to the Haiti, th- the Haiti earthquake and also Katrina as well, so that there is a cadre of orthopedic surgeons who are prepared to go and work in an austere environment and do something, uh, bo- either domestic or foreign. And so... Um, um, there are a lot of uh, a lot of lessons learned. I mean, there are a few myths out there too. Uh, one myth being that our foreign medical teams, with any kind of uh, medical training, uh, helpful. Actually, it would it would seem that, uh, and this is uh, published by the CDC, that um, you know m- most of the time, the foreign medical teams don't get there in time to really be that effective. M- Put another way, more people, few, few lives are actually saved by foreign medical teams. Um, and so um, in, in Haiti, for example, um, Doctors Without Borders, um, uh, their experience became uh, a, a bit of a, a, a model because they were already there. They already had a capacity there. They'd been there for 20 years. And uh, in the first five months following the Haiti earthquake, uh, they did over 11,000 surgeries. They did de- uh, delivered more than 3,500 babies. Moreover, they addressed almost 100,000 people, about 80,000 people with post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a huge effort because we never really addressed the mental health problems of these terrible, terrible uh, um, um, disasters. Uh, they also developed primary care clinics so that they could s- do surveillance. And, and more importantly, they did a really cool thing that after a couple of months, those first group of nurses and doctors who... Who, who were helping in the earth, earthquake, you know, they had to get rotated out because you're just burned out. But then they, they, returned, they returned their ratio of expatriate doctors to local doctors and nurses back to the usual sort of ratio of, of 1 to 10, you know. And so that's an important for capacity building um, in, in, in places. So, you know, yeah, Haiti was a bit of an uh, international response disaster too, but we learned a few things from them as well. Um, what uh, sort of things, if we ever had something like that happen here in the islands, what sort of learning issues do you think came out of that, and how could we do it better? Well, I think uh, I mean I just came. Uh, Greg Nakano is uh, is a UH prof at the National Disaster Preparedness Training uh, Program. Actually, we're at a conference today at UH Manoa, trying to discuss how better to do this in our region. And what are some of the stressors in our region? For example, uh, ten, uh, there's, a, there's a, a risk, a world disaster risk index. And 10 of the top 20 countries uh, list higher are actually happen to be in our neighborhood. So Fiji is a good example, uh, Tonga, Philippines. And, and so it's, it's right on our doorstep. Plus, uh, you know, we have a huge population. We have great distances to cover. So the response to, uh, to a disaster can be very, very difficult. And, um, and so how do, how, how do we help that? You know, it's, it's not going to be just uh, we have to look at local assets. So we have to increase local capacity for, for, say, surgical problems, infectious disease problems. There's the military capacity. So it's more of a coordination of different groups. So and what I found very interesting about today's meeting was there, the, 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 the military and civil NGOs are talking, are talking a lot more and starting to cooperate, which isn't a paradigm that was common in the past. Military usually, you know, did, you know, and the NGOs just um, they had they were maybe competing interests, if you will, or had a different uh, kind of approach. 
and uh, and never really cooperated. But now they are. They're talking to each other. Even even um, even uh, corporate America and and the corporate world is starting to respond. So, for example, the Ebola virus uh, um, uh, problem in the Congo had a had a big um, impact with with you know North American companies or European companies who are doing say mining things in in in, in Congo. Are, are helping out with that effort as well. So now you've got the the big organizations, WHO, uh, Red Cross, helping out with corporate, uh, the corporate world, helping out with the NGOs or faith-based organizations along with the military. So um, it's happening. It's a hard equation to uh, to solve, uh, but uh, I think efforts are being made. Uh, in our region, it has to happen because, you know, we're so prone to disasters. With climate change happening, uh, you know, uh, they're they're predicting there'll be more problems, so we have to prepare. And preparedness is the is is the key word. And so it's happening. And I'm actually, I'm not even here a year on the island. And and uh, after a, a career of doing global health stuff, and I'm quite impressed with the uh, with the uh, the com- the global health community in Hawaii is 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 very vibrant. Uh, like many places, it's a bit uncoordinated, mostly because everyone's so multidisciplinary, right? If you're all a bunch of internists like yourself, then it's easy to get together and talk about your problems. But if you're a surgeon and a nurse and a public health person and, uh, and uh, you know, and so, you know, you don't get together that often, but uh, they're making efforts. And that's really, really helpful. Very fruitful. Uh, today's meeting that Greg put together was so eclectic. It was, uh, it was really quite cool. Well, and so. I think one of the issues is, should we ever have some sort of an emergency and we have this emergency response team, how can we make sure that people who want to be part of assistance, whether mm-hmm. they be family on the mainland or somewhere mm-hmm. internationally, what can they do to help out? And I mean, we think, when we look at other areas in the world and we think about other disaster efforts, people often say, what can I do? Should I go in my closet and send them my clothes? Should I go ahead and send people my extra medication? What is the most effective thing? So if we had a disaster here in the islands and people from the mainland wanted to know what to do, what is the most effective way? I think the most effective way is education. You know, there are there are courses out there. And the other thing I often wonder is, you know, the educational component, what about if they want to donate, if they want to be part of the efforts? Should they be looking at sending things, mailing things, or is it really more about trying to find an effective place to donate money? Um, before I answer that question, the, a little more on the courses. There's, uh, uh, there are community courses. Uh, often they're just a weekend long, and uh, preparedness is everything. Um, it, in today's uh, conference uh, at UH Manoa, um, um, the, the discussion was you should be prepared for a 7- to 10-day period of not having any access to water or food. So, so what does that mean? Should, like keep so a bunch of should, water in my garage? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's what it means. That's what it means. So okay. cans, you know, stored goods, you know, a case of, uh, you know, uh, um, water, uh, G2, whatever. Oh, I shouldn't have said G2. But okay. anyway. <laughs> like different types of <laughs> Different kinds drinks. of drinks sure, and yeah. that sort of thing. And um, and and just being prepared. And and, and, and and the courses are out there. They're even online, they're, but they're local courses. There's a, there's a, a disaster group out of Manoa, you know, Disaster Manoa, I think it's called. And, and I'm sure every community uh, uh, likely has one. And, uh, and so that's, that's is, is learn the ropes, learn the commun- lines of commu- communication, 
and uh, and then and and then that's the best approach. A lot of people to answer your question now is uh, we'll ask, well, you know, uh, how can I assist in this if uh, if if something's happening in 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 Hawaii, for example, and I'm from the, the best thing is is to you know uh, you know communicate, find out what's going on. But in terms of assistance, people will often ask me, well, what organization should I donate to? I'm getting, you know, emails from things I've never heard of, groups I've never heard of, and that sort of thing. And and in the past, in other efforts for disasters, there have been basically scams, scams to try and get money and that kind of thing. My, my recommendation is uh, is is if you're going to donate money, donate it to the big established organizations that you hear about all the time. So American Red Cross, um, International Red Cross, um, Doctors Without Borders, um, Doctors of the World, um, International Medical Corps, Save the Children, UNICEF. Uh, the safe thing is to give it to them. A lot of people will ask, well, I'd like to give some stuff. I'd like to give some over-the-counter drugs or, you know, blankets, that kind of thing. They generally don't want that. They actually would prefer to have funds because they know what they need and they know and they just need the funds to get it. But I'm a consumer too. I don't like giving money unless I know where it's going. And so, but um, I think giving it to the big established groups are the best. So those groups, do we need some sort of overarching kind of, I don't want to say control because that lends itself to some different interpretations. But you mentioned the World Health Organization or maybe the UN kind of having a coordinated disaster effort so that if there is something going on in the world, they know who to deploy, <clears throat> what resources they need, and kind of have this whole protocol smoothed out so that we don't see the duplication of efforts and then the lack of things that are needed in these various locations. Is there a role for that? Do you think we have enough power with the UN or the World Health Organization to sort of take over that sort of supervisory position? WHO is... Uh, um I mean, it's it's more of an information organization. A lot of people have a misconceptions about the World Health Organization. It it is a, a, a branch of the United Nations, um, uh, but uh, a lot of people think it's a funding agency as well. It doesn't. It's not a big funder. The Gates Foundation has a bigger budget in a one year than the whole of the WHO, <clears throat> and. Uh, so, um, but they do have a, a, a pretty re- pretty reasonable brand name, and uh, and so to act. But to answer your question as as the overwhelming um, uh, organizer for disasters, I think that's still being worked out. That's We've got to work that answer. out, yeah. Because that's yeah. what I would wonder locally here in the islands. You know, if we had you know EMS and we had fire and ambulance and all these various people, you know, we do have a good disaster response team that's been established. Is it enough to take care of everyone in the various islands that make up the Hawaii chain? That would be a hard thing to know. Mm-hmm. I'm sure every different island has to have its own available resources. And even so, I think on a smaller scale, if you can find a way to coordinate, maybe that can be therefore positioned on a larger scale if necessary. So, you know, I always think there's a bit of learning that we could all do to try and refine that and make it a much more easily accessible plan. You know, every time we hear of hurricane season, you know, everybody says, get all your disaster preparedness done. You hear about it on the news, the weather people tell you, and people may or may not really understand what that means. You said seven to 10 days, which means food and water and medication and ways to power your devices should you need to use those for communication. Lots of different things that people uh, may not realize when we talk about disaster preparedness because we're not used to having it here happening here at home. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think the traumatic aspect of life 
and the accidents and things we do see here, maybe not as much as in developing countries, but still we're familiar with car accidents and those sorts of things. We know that they happen. We try and prevent them. But I think on the global scale, as far as health perspectives from disasters, I still think there's a lot that we would learn. And unfortunately, you only learn by experience. Well, and, and my research hat goes on when I think, okay, we've got questions to be answered. And now we've got the capacity for big data management. We've got the capacity for telecommunications. So one of the reasons, Kathleen, I actually came to Hawaii was because of the Shriners Hospital uh, outreach program. And so... Um, um, because I used to do this kind of work mostly on my off time, now, uh, you know, the Shriners organization, which I've known about uh, all my orthopedic life because it's, uh, it's an amazing organization, um, uh, the, the prospect of being able to, to, to do clinics in the, devel- in, 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 uh, in, in the Pacific uh, Rim countries uh, was, uh, was overwhelming for me. And so now when I go out and do clinics, I'm also going to be, you know, uh, looking at the uh, – potential for doing research. So, for example, surgical capacity in the Solomon Islands or in, uh, in uh, Fiji or uh, Tonga or Palau or something like that. So while I'm doing a clinic, one of my students are, will go out and, 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 and use a WHO validated questionnaire to assess the surgical capacity for an acute phase of a disaster in Palau. So easy to do. And it collects data. If we do that at every island that we visit, you know, that's, that's good intel. You know, the WHO loves that kind of stuff because now we can make informed decisions based on good data. And then we can also use, do surveillance over time. Well, the next disaster came. How did that uh, work out for Palau? Well, they were able to do this, this, and this because we had that data from before. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's begging for more research. We have the capacity you know, uh, Shriners has a good tele- telemedicine uh, program as well. That can be useful in both acute care and in uh, in, in research uh, uh, potential. So um, uh, I'm really uh, really keen to uh, to participate in in the travels around this region. Well, we're going to hear more about some of the unique uh, opportunities that are available to you and also people who happen to interact with Shriners in just a moment. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio. With Dr. Paul Moraz, he is from Shriners Hospital. He's an orthopedic specialist and part-time epidemiologist. We're talking about healthcare around the world and how does this affect us right here in the islands. And we've talked a little bit about what's going on in developing countries with trauma. We've talked a little bit about disaster relief. And when we come back, we're going to talk some more about what is going on locally here at Shriners. What are some of the opportunities for outreach? And what are some of these future potential plans to establish not just data collection in some of these countries, but also ways in which we can provide care, not only here in the islands for people from these developing places, but also locally on site where they are at home as well. As always, if you want to be in touch and be part of our show or have a question for an expert in disaster relief, hey, we potentially have an answer for you. You can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. On the next Humankind. Life is a banquet. And the tragedy is that most people are starving to death. We remember the provocative teaching of Anthony DeMello, one of the 20th century's greatest spiritual thinkers. He fused Buddhist mindfulness with his Catholic faith into a message that resonates today. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. 
It's a new day for the Irish language. Unlike past centuries, it's now cool again. While studying English requires a really big family tree. As one famous American linguist said, English is our magnificent bastard tongue. And that's true. And get tips for driving the back roads of Ireland. As we always say to the tourists when they're heading off, keep her between the ditches. On the next Travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Nohea Gallery and Kaiser Permanente. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, here with Dr. Paul Moraz. He's an orthopedic specialist at Shriners Hospital. And we're talking today about global health around the world. And speaking of global health around the world, and even here in the islands, a lot of people don't really know a lot about what Shriners does. And you mentioned just a little bit earlier about some of the outreach programs that you have an opportunity to do in the Pacific Rim. What are some of the misconceptions that people have about Shriners? You know, for for even for doctors, I mean, I take care of adults. I'm an internist. I'm not as in touch with what's going on in the pediatric community. But there are opportunities for children to be seen even locally here. Tell me a little bit about what Shriners offers right here on site. So uh, we will we'll see children from anywhere. The model for uh, the Shriners is that uh, we'll look after any child, you know, uh, without any uh, without any worry about the the payment issue. However, uh, the Shriners we do now take insured patients from from the islands. Um, that happened uh, since t- 2010, and so uh, we are. Um, um, in fact, most of the kids we see are actually Hawaiian Islanders. So we actually do clinics in most of the islands. I was just on the Big Island uh, last Thursday and Friday, um, and uh, we'll see patients there um, at a variety of places. Uh, and uh, and then uh, it's the same sort of uh, approach. Uh, if uh, if they require an operation, then they they come over to Honolulu to our to our operating room. And so, and we manage the the full breadth and width of pediatric orthopedics up to age eighteen, from zero to eighteen, basically. So, and that would include. Uh, uh, now we talked about you know uh, fractures that are four years old or something like. That. Well, we look after acute fractures as well. We actually have a an injury clinic every morning uh, of the week from uh, from eight till twelve. Uh, so anyone who with an injury, it could be a baseball injury, a basketball injury. A, uh, any any kind of injury, sports related or not, um, that uh, they're having a problem, they can walk in, and we'll then we have a a staff orthopedic surgeon uh, um, uh, there every morning to deal with their problem, even if they require an operation. So uh, and and so that's an important thing for people to know. And then, as I said, we'll uh, we uh, will deal with the full breadth of uh, um, children's pediatric orthopedic problems from from. Uh, hip dysplasia or kids with, uh, um, you know, uh, club feet, um, uh, scoliosis, kyphosis, all the spinal deformities uh, that children unfortunately sometimes get, uh, we, will, we will be involved in their care. And so uh, um, uh, we have an excellent uh, staff there. We have um, 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 full, a full orthopedic approach. We have a a pediatric neurologist there, uh, Ryan Lee, who has been a great asset because he uh, 
Um, uh, he approaches the uh, from the neuro- neurologist's point of view, and many of the children we we see will have um, uh, problems such as cerebral palsy or syndromes or muscular dystrophy and all the orthopedic ramifications that can happen from that. And it's uh, it's it's awesome to have a neurologist with you because they can certainly help you uh, to diagnose things and to uh, you know optimize. We're in the business of trying to optimize a children's life. We may not be able to change the problem they have, but we want to make them functional. We want to give them every opportunity to have a an improved quality of life, and uh, and um, and that's uh, very fulfilling. Well, it's an excellent mission, and I remember you know we've had one of the staff docs on from Shriners a couple of years ago, and one of the things people don't realize is they have a dental clinic. And mm-hmm. I said, how did that come about? And he said, well, you know. You can't do a lot of orthopedic surgeries if kids have cavities in their mouth because the bacteria could get into the bloodstream and thus infect any sort of procedure that we're trying to do. So they had to establish out of need a dental clinic. And so that's also part of what's available to trainers. It's a really busy clinic, actually. And, uh, and uh, you know, for kids from everywhere, uh, especially these kids from the, from the islands, they come here and they've never seen a dentist in their lives. And uh, so it, uh, it's, a, it's a big help. And, um, uh, and so that's a very, very busy clinic for sure. Yeah. So now Shriners will accept people with insurance, uh, happily so, but also see those without insurance. Yes. Uh, you get this unique opportunity as, as an orthopedic surgeon there to be able to take time off, what is about six weeks a year, and do some of the outreach clinics in the Pacific Rim. Where is it that you go, and and what is it that you wind up doing there? Well, it's not time off, actually. It's pretty It's, it's time on. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty it's busy. It's not necessarily time off. It's time on. It's <laughs> I know geographically saying. relocated. Yeah, so, yes, yes. It, I mean, I imagine it's got to be even more difficult than your usual <laughs> day because you know here it's kind of predictable you know you go home if you need air conditioning you have it food available the the most up-to-date supplies equipment power tools you talk about it's all here it's almost like you know in my mind going back to some of these other places might be how do you practice orthopedic surgery when you don't have the type of equipment that you have here it really is going back to the basics you've got to be really good at what you're doing to be able to be that able to modify what you're doing using different equipment. So during this time, you go to these various places. Do you wind up doing a lot of surgery, doing a lot of teaching, doing a lot of both? What is this what does this time do for you and how does it help you professionally to help other people? So our our primary uh goal is to is to go to uh Pacific Rim countries um, and American protectorates. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure I will not give a comprehensive list. So Guam, Saipan, Tinia, Palau, Fiji, uh, Marshall Islands, um, um, all these uh, other places, I'm sure I'm not getting the list right. But uh, And so we'll go there and we'll do clinics. We rarely do actually do surgery in the, because really we want to be able to operate on these children uh, in in a in optimal circumstances. in optimal circumstances, okay. our philosophy and you know and honestly we we can't help all children you know um, we try to find uh, the kind of child that we can help 
with one operation and maybe a, a month or two in, a, in rehabilitation that we can actually change their lives. If we take a child from a from a from an island that's going to require multiple operations, then it's hard to it's hard to coordinate that, and it's uh, and so we try to. Um, because uh, we want to be able to do the most we can with, for, for as many children as possible. And so uh, we take residents from the UH program with us to these, con- uh, to these um, uh, islands, and uh, so they get an educational input. They also help tremendously with the clinics, because sometimes these clinics are like 150 kids in a day. And I complain you know, about yeah. seeing patients yeah. and there's 150. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm going to so, stop and, complaining, right? And we do clinics. And then if we deem that, uh, you know, yes, th- this patient would do well if we brought them to Honolulu and, and did some surgery and some rehabilitation and some dental if they need it, uh, then, uh, then, uh, then the Shriners organization kicks in as, as wonderful as it is. All the coordinators and uh, and uh, outreach folks who do all the calls and the logistics to get these kids, and then the paperwork, as you can imagine, they need the passports and all that sort of thing can can take some time. But uh, uh, and then we can bring them to Honolulu, and uh, and then they they have to stay for three months because we have to do some rehab, with, serious rehab with them. Then we have a family center on our property, and also there are communities, uh, a community center. So the Marshall Islands. Uh, community has got a, a, a house in, on the in Oahu that can uh, that can house them for for several weeks and that sort of thing, and so we're able to bring in as many children as we can to try and help them. You know, uh, sometimes we ask, well, that's a pretty expensive operation, but uh, I'm happy to say that uh, I you know uh, I've sat in on some of these uh, um, uh, board of governors meetings here in in uh, in, in in Honolulu. You know, and, and, you know, it's an interesting group of people. You know, these are like, uh, these are seasoned business guys who don't suffer fools uh, easily. And, and, you know, you sort of think, oh, you know, they're not going to go for, you know. But they say, and they'll turn around and face you, what's the best, what's the best thing for this kid? They look at you and it's like, wow, you know, yeah, so let's just do it, you know. And uh, it's, uh, you know, you don't, you don't see that too often from hospital boards, you know, uh, when uh, the bottom line can right? sometimes be a difference. So it's... Uh, it's an amazing organization. Uh, I can't say enough. I mean, I've I've known about the Shriners all, all my professional life because uh, there's a Shriners Hospital in Montreal uh, that I've uh, collaborated with for for many years as I've worked in Ottawa, and uh, and 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 and, there, and also the, the research and education is a big big part of our mission, as well as the treatment of children. And so uh, some world class research comes out of out of Shriners Labs. They're publishing out there. You know, with the best of them, and so, um, um, so that the opportunity to come here to work with the Shriners uh, uh, is 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 just an amazing opportunity. You know, for for me and for and to see these kids do well, it's uh, it's amazing. Do you have any particular memorable cases? Uh, you know, there's lots of memorable cases. You know, uh, um, uh, too many to count. <laughs> They're all great. They're all great. You know, I, I guess to answer that is, uh, you know, uh, I'm used to operating on those kinds of cases in a Bhutanese operating room or a Nepalese operating and it's just not the same. But then to bring this kind of, you know, major league problem that you, you won't see in another American hospital because they don't, you know, these kinds of fractures get treated or these kinds of infections, you know, don't go on for months or years and then wreak the havoc on the bones that they do. Um, from from the kids that we see, and so uh, um, 
but to do them in a in a in a in a real operating room with the real stuff is uh, is uh, it's it's heartening. It's a joy, you know. So compared to doing the surgery in Bhutan or in Nepal, where you're sort of trying to figure out a way to it's challenging. get all the supplies that you need and hopefully fix things somehow, yeah. to have that opportunity to bring a child here and use all of the latest equipment and machinery and everything that you can really has to be almost like a night and day experience. It is, it is. But I'm happy to say that I'm involved in a major worldwide research effort where we're trying to um, improve the metrics or uh, the statistics of the burden of uh, musculoskeletal care in countries like Bhutan and Nepal and Tanzania and Rwanda and places like in order to try and give those surgeons the kind of data they need to take to their stakeholders, their mayors, their governors, their presidents and say, look, you know, you know, these people need better care. We need better equipment. And and that involves, you know, and they're poor countries, but we can get industry involved and we can get, uh, you know, the WHO involved and that sort of thing. So that's part of the part of the attraction for me to stay involved in that kind of research in, in places like Africa and Asia. And so I've got the best of both worlds. I've got the best job in the world. You know, and it's 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 a nice thing to hear you say that. I do it for nothing, times, but don't tell my boss. That, I won't yeah. tell your boss, you know. <laughs> but a lot of times in medicine, you hear about people who, as their career goes on, they're just, you know, burnt out or tired of doing what they're doing or maybe don't see the gratification that they used to when they started. And it sounds like you've been able to really balance not just the orthopedic surgery element, but also continue to keep your, keep your hands in epidemiology yep. to use yep. that information to help look at what are the causes of death, accidents, demise in developing countries, how can we really have a realistic impact to to make a difference here? And what is the data that we need to collect in order to make sure this continues to happen? So it's been this unique marriage of sur- the two areas that I would think are so completely opposite, orthopedic surgery and epidemiology, <laughs> yeah, <it's true. laughs> and yet you found this way to bring them together yeah. in such a unique combination because Truthfully, you know, a lot of people, I mean, I've traveled to different places and I worry, do I need to bring malaria prophylaxis? Should I bring antibiotics? Should I bring, you know, whatever it is I need? And yet I often don't think about what if you're on a bus traveling really fast on a road that isn't completely, you know, paved? And what if that bus has an accident? You're really not going to care if you get malaria or not. You're going to care if you survive, if you have a fracture, if you have need for emergency services. And that's probably an under-recognized underappreciated cause of, of issues I, I have an travel. answer for that as well. I tell people, you know, when you're going to, you know, countries in, in, in the developed world, you know, you, you can, you can ha, ha, spend a little bit more on a, on a better taxi or a van or something like that. Uh, I used to go to some of these uh, major cities where the guy's driving, like the taxi's driving like a maniac and say, okay, look, I'll pay you more if you drive slow, more slowly, you know, because... And you would know, they? And uh, they would. <laughs> they, they would. And so, so you can, uh, you know, uh, a lot of students will go overseas and they'll... Uh, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna fly from you know Johannesburg to Dar es Salaam, and I'm gonna take a cheap Africa. Well, don't because the tra- the, the, the 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 plane crash record in uh, in Africa is pretty bad in some of those things. So go with the go with the well known you know uh, uh, flights and that sort of thing. Spend the extra money because your life could be on. So you, you need to do your research as well as take your malaria pills and your detox. That's true. I mean, I don't yeah. want to suggest that you don't need to do that yeah. and don't get malaria. But you're right, you know, and I think maybe as time has gone on, when I've traveled to these countries, initially I was probably much more on a budget and looking more towards, 
okay, how can I get from point A to point B and not have to spend a lot of money? And yet this past year, a little less than a year ago, I went to a conference and it happened to be in Africa, Johannesburg. And so (laughs) as I was looking at trying to book tickets, I went, you know, I got addicted to this TV show. I should not, I should never have started watching and I've watched every episode, Air Crash Investigation. (laughs) And, you know, they're talking about what... Foreign countries don't follow FAA regulations for upkeep on planes. And I'm like, okay, I need to make sure I fly with a reputable carrier and make sure from point A to point B I have adequate transportation arranged because I think maybe either I'm more cautious as I'm older or more of a fraidy cat and scared of stuff. <laughs> I don't know. But I think that whole ap- that whole aspect of trauma really is something we need to appreciate more when we travel. But also know that in addition to the traumatic sort of injuries that can occur to us, the health in developing countries, the capacity of those countries to take care of their own people, to elevate their health status, it really does affect all of us. And it will take a global community to make any appreciable difference in this area at all. And it's not just, you know, you yourself, although you're doing a fabulous job, but also through Shriners, but it's also just all of us looking at health as a global a global priority and putting our money where our priorities are because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. often we don't do that. I agree. Absolutely. Where would you like to go next? I mean, <laughs> if you could go anywhere in the world and spend six months doing research and or having a huge health impact, where would that be? Uh, I think I'll stay here for now. <laughs> I've, uh, you know, Staying right here yeah, in the islands. Yeah, yep. Getting to learn more about it. You've yeah. only been here a little less than a year. That's right. That's right. About seven or eight months. And uh, and uh, my wife and I, Claire, she's a family doctor. Um, and uh, she's, you know, come on a lot of these travels with me. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, been wonderful to have a partner who can uh, share those uh, experiences with you. And then, uh, and so part of the attraction to coming to this part of the world is that we've been to a lot of the rest of the world, you know, Asia and uh, in Africa and that sort of thing. So, you know, what was left, you know, so now we're here. So well, we're going to soak it for all we can. Right I now. bet. But also now you get <clears> to see that we really are part of this whole ring of fire, you know, this whole Pacific Rim where there's a lot of different countries, a lot of different opportunities to provide medical care Absolutely. to those locations. Absolutely. And you're kind of closer here. Well, and I had no, actually, I had no idea that the hurricane and the cyclone problem and the earthquake and tsunami thing was so prevalent here, you know, and, and uh, you know, the epidemiologist in me comes out and I go, wow, you know, and then, and then honestly, the research capacity has not been optimized. So like, wow, here's another, here's another opportunity. So I'm hoping to, hoping to contribute if I can. But I'm, uh, I'm really buoyed to see the community here, you know, and I'm talking, you know, the UH folks, the military folks, it's, there's, a, there's a real sense of community about the big problem, the big, uh, the big picture for disaster care here in this region. So I think we're in pretty good hands. You know, I think we're going to make some uh, good inroads. Excellent to know, yeah. and certainly reassuring for all of us to know that if there is some sort of a, a major disaster, that we do have the medical community who's going to be able to step up and really help out, and people like yourself who will help the uh, those who are afflicted by trauma to get taken care of. So, you know, it's been a real interesting discussion. I really want to thank you, Dr. Palmeros, for sharing your expertise with My us pleasure. today. On The Body Show, you are an expert in orthopedic surgery coming from Shriners Hospital. And thanks for dedicating your life to taking care of children from around the world. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. We'll see you then. 
Thank you.